Welcome to 20 Minute Topic, I'm Marcus Stead and I'm joined as ever by veteran campaigner and blogger Greg Lance Watkins. We're going to do something slightly different this week. On Wednesday, one of Britain's very best journalists, Christopher Booker, died at the age of 81. If I was to sum up what I think Christopher Booker's greatest strength was, I would say it was his ability for independent thought. He was a friend to many people, but he was not a pack animal. He hated groupthink and the herd mentality of the mainstream media. Greg first met Christopher more than 50 years ago, and they became good friends. We can't possibly do justice to Christopher's extraordinary body of work in 20 minutes, but we hope to give you a flavour of what he was like and why his work was so important. So, Greg, you'd known Christopher Booker since the 1960s. Where and how did you originally meet? Um, I bumped into him. Um, in a pub in Chelsea and um, at the same time met uh, David Frost, Millicent Martin, Bernard Levin, Mm. Peter Cook and Willie Rushton. Mm. Um, And I just happened to get involved in conversation with them. Um, Minded that I was some 10 years younger than them, um, and am now, I believe, the only one of that group who's still alive. Um, I was hardly memorable to them, but mm. they were very memorable to me. Mm. Uh, I also, um, in about 1967, uh, was working um, just off Regent Street. Um, and I was working with Big O and Splash Posters. Mm. Um and I remember going round to Private Eye's office to deliver some free T-shirts that we'd designed, um, which were the iconic Che Guevara silhouette. So you were uh, the inventor of the Che Guevara T-shirts? Um, well, I, I was uh, <laughs> one of those who agreed that this was a good direction to go in. Mm, mm. Uh, shall we say it wasn't a sole invention. Nothing, nothing was. No, no. Um, but going back but, to, to Christopher's early life, this was a very, very exciting time to be young, I imagine, and a very exciting time to be in London. And Christopher Booker, his his life, he, he was from Shropshire. He went to the same school as Willie Rushton and others who remained... Richard his, Ingram, uh, for uh, one. And Richard Ingram's. Then he met David Frost, and then we had... They went through um, Cambridge University in the case of Christopher Corpus Christi College, I believe. And yep. then it was, they got involved with the BBC and then TW3. That was the week that was. I've seen footage of it. Okay, it was of its time, but that revolutionised satire in this country and Christopher was at the heart of it. Uh, Christopher very much underpinned it because um, intellectually... Uh, Christopher and Bernard Levin were probably the keys there um, Mm. in that uh, Bernard Levin was an erudite, if in many ways unassuming, uh, little man who, um, and I say little because he was quite Mm. a a small man, Mm. um, and um, he was an outstanding journalist, became an outstanding journalist in his own right. Yes. Um, and um, Christopher 
had a very good history degree from Corpus um, Christi. Um, and they started out this satirical uh, movement where um, when Christopher, as the launching editor of Private Eye mm. uh, in 1961, uh, laid down the foundations of how uh, the, the eye would function forevermore, they're still um, taking no prisoners as an organization. Mm. Uh, they're still uh, able to uh, wallpaper their offices in writs for uh, for people who are trying to suppress the truth. Um, he had an extraordinary relationship with Private Eye because he was the founding editor, and then he had a falling out with Richard Ingrams for a period, although they made 1963. It up. Yeah, yeah. They, they'd made it up by the early 70s, and they, they were, I've seen pictures of them pictured together quite recently. They, they ended up re- renewing their friendship. But Christopher said... Um, particularly in the 1970s when Private Eye was involved in a writ with Sir James Goldsmith. He didn't always toe the magazine line. Indeed, uh, Christopher wrote a piece for The Spectator around about that time, saying that there were occasions where Private Eye brought out the worst in British journalism. Um, And again, that was around the the time of the famous James Goldsmith court case. Um, so it was a complex relationship, but it was a lifelong relationship. He was working at Private Eye until very recently indeed, I believe. Uh, yeah, he was working at the beginning of this year. Mm. Um, although um, there were those of us who knew uh, that his days were numbered mm. um, from about October. Mm. Uh, in fact, he called me up for a conversation about it um, because he had been very supportive of me as I'd gone through um, cancer over many years. And mm. he said, got any tips? Mm. And we discussed it in some um, fairly intimate detail. Mm. Um, but he still continued writing for Private Eye. Yes. Um, Muckraker and, uh, uh, was his byline. Mm. Um, and... Uh, his fallout with Richard Ingram was just um, a power struggle. And when you're fronting something for the first three years of its existence mm. um, and uh, involved in young marriages and the like, mm. um, it brings pressures that uh, can lead to to fairly acrimonious short-term breakups. Yes, but it, it was all uh, it was all a very long time ago and relations have been fine with him for a very long time indeed. Oh, uh, indeed. Yeah, and also Willie Rushton, of course, he, he gets an honourable ma- mention in all this for his work. He was taken from us too soon. He's been dead since the mid-1990s, but he yeah. was a phenomenal wit as well. Um, looking back at Christopher's early career, the, the, the thing that strikes me every time is that we associate him a lot with politics and political causes he could have gone on to become a a prolific jazz writer or a cricket writer or even a cricket commentator there were so many spheres he could have gone down and got to the very top of that those particular industries as well he was a man of extraordinary breadth wasn't he well um he started out uh 60 years ago as the jazz critic Hmm. uh, for The Telegraph. Hmm. Um, 
the fact that um, last year, particularly, he come, came under, um, when I say last year, um, at the beginning of um, 2018, he came under tremendous pressure from the Telegraph, mm. who wanted to slash his column because he used to, as you will remember, in the Sunday Telegraph, have a full page. That's, well, in that the was main... slashed about 10 years ago, as I recall. Uh, yeah, but they had been trying to slash it because he just wasn't prepared mm. to prostitute his intellect mm. to their politically correct mm. bias. Mm. Mm. Um, and he came under a fair amount of attack from them, mm. um, from ever more useless um, editors mm. um, who lost sight of where the Telegraph is going. It's now a comic mm. um, for selling um, travel and books. Mm. Uh, and if you doubt that, go on to their website and you'll find that as soon as you click on a travel advert, you can't get back into the newspaper. Well, my, my own view of the Telegraph is that there's about four or five columnists there who I like, and I also think their sports coverage is still pretty good. But I do know what you mean about it not being the paper it was uh, some years ago. Um, but the, the Christopher Booker I remember, um, I'm 35, so although I have an appreciation of the satire boom and all that went on in the 70s, beyond that, beyond the 60s into the 70s, I associate Christopher Booker primarily with his Euroscepticism, or to use a phrase you might prefer to use, Eurorealism, in that week in, week out in the Telegraph, well before uh, the 2016 referendum, going right the way through the 1990s into the 2000s, I got the, uh, the impression that Christopher had a very deep understanding of how the mechanics of the EU worked better than just about anyone else in this country. Um, he had an exceeding in-depth knowledge. Mm. But Christopher would have been the first to point out that much of that knowledge wasn't his. Mm. It was the research done by um, his partner in crime um, as a journalist, um, Richard North. Yes. And um, he and Richard had had an association going back into the 90s mm. Uh, and Christopher would normally phone Richard at about 11 o'clock at night, and they would be on the phone uh, discussing the politics of the day and what was happening in Europe. Mm. And bear in mind, Richard had worked at senior levels in the European Union uh, for a time, mm. um, and part of his job had been pouring... Um, the drunken Nigel Farage into the back of taxis to get him out of harm's way right, for publicity reasons yeah, yeah. Um, and covering for him. So he had learnt the ins and outs of the uh, European Union firsthand and just how corrupt it was. Hmm. Um, and he did the research whilst Christopher, with his particular arts bent wielded the pen mm. Mm. Um, and um, doing that Christopher will not be forgotten mm. uh, because the Booker-North combination produced uh, four absolutely seminal books about the European Union 
probably the best known of which uh, was The Great Deception, their latest book together on the subject, Mm. um, which uh, Richard has been charged with updating um, as a favour to Booker. Uh, and that will be done uh, more or less as rapidly as Richard can do it. When, uh, so the, um, when the referendum happened and the leave result was announced and Theresa May was charged with the process of taking Britain out of the European Union, I said at the time that what she needs to do is create a sort of Brexit cabinet of people whose expertise are understood. And one, I, I called for her to do this on a cross-party basis. I said she'd be well advised to bring in somebody like Gisela Stewart from the Labour side who um, campaigned well for the Leave campaign. But I also said that Theresa May would do very well to bring Christopher Booker and Richard North into her inner circle of advisers on Brexit because they understood it so well. And it is sad that we've lost Christopher at such an important time in the Brexit process. Um, the really sad thing is the absolute self-obsession of the politicians mm. who fundamentally haven't got a clue what they're doing or how to do it mm. uh, and are turning the entire um, Brexit into an absolutely balls-aching um, debacle yes. um, due yes. to their ineptitude. Uh, Christopher Booker and Richard North... Um, tried to brief politicians, Hmm. but the politicians were too stupid to understand the briefing. Yes, and and I noticed a theme uh, in Christopher's Sunday Telegraph columns in the latter half of last year into this year in particular, was that there are dangers in a no-deal Brexit that nobody in the House of Commons really understands at all. There's a danger... There's a danger in calling it a no-deal Brexit mm, because mm. it's a lie. To, it to, is to, not yeah. no deal. Yeah. It's a very formalised deal. Mm. It, it, no deal actually means a comprehensive deal mm. that is not bespoke. Now, that's a hell of a lot different to no deal at all. Yes, because as Christopher himself said, and I've quoted this, in numerous interviews I've done on the subject, and indeed I've included it in my own writing work, um, everything from getting Formula One cars in and out of this country 18, 19 times a year to getting um, pedigree horses into this country for the Grand National. Okay, you may not say they're the most important things in the grand scheme of things, but these are just examples of things that would not have any legal basis under a no-deal Brexit. And Christopher wrote about this week in and week out. Um, so, Christopher, I would recommend anybody with an interest, a serious interest in this, looks into Christopher's columns for the last two years if you want to understand how the mechanics of the EU work and the dangers of a no-deal Brexit. I'm not predicting the, the apocalypse or anything like that, but there are significant risks involved, and Christopher understood them better than just about anybody. But going beyond that, um, Christopher's campaigning journalism... Um, He challenged the orthodoxy of the toxicity of asbestos. He questioned the link between passive smoking and cancer, the dangers to human health of BSE. And he wrote in great depth about the myth of man-made climate change and the wobbly science behind it. This was a man who championed unfashionable causes. Uh, Indeed, he was. Also, um, the huge amount of um, good 
that Christopher was able to bring to the press, to the through the press, to the public uh, attention of the staggering corruption of the family's courts. Well, that's right, and I know what you're talking about because there were examples of children who were taken away from their parents based on spurious allegations that were ultimately proven to have no truth in them whatsoever, but by which time the child had been forcibly adopted. And Christopher took on a number of cases where um, this had happened. It happens far more often when we're being led to believe. So, yes. Well, it's part part of our... Um, in-camera secret courts and show trials. Yes, that's right. Um, which are easily, in that instance, as bad as the show trials of a, a Soviet or dictator regime. Again, there's a huge amount of archive footage you can look up of Christopher Booker. If anyone wants pointing in that direction, I would suggest the case of Tony and Debbie Sims is a particularly good place to start. Uh, Google Christopher Booker, Tony Sims, Debbie Sims, and you'll get an understanding of that case, but there's many, many more that Christopher covered. Um yeah. You knew Christopher Booker. You you reacquainted yourself with him in later life. Um, as a person, I, I, sus- I always got the impression he'd be a great fun person to know, sh- simply because he had such a wide range of interests, from jazz to cricket to nature, wildlife. What was he like to speak to? You could ring him up and say, do you have somebody's phone number? Mm. Um, because you wanted to get hold of them. Mm. Um, and an hour and a half later, um, you'd be discussing um, Greek philosophers in the context of some modern-day event. Mm. Um, and you'd look at your watch and think, my God, I've been on the phone for an hour and a half. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it was free-flowing. He um, had knowledge in so many different areas. Mm. The conversations were always interesting. Mm. Um, I was able to learn a great deal from him. Mm. I saw him as a mentor, um, yet he would quite unashamedly ring me for advice on things. Yes. yes. Um, there was absolutely no pomposity about him, mm. uh, though he could be quite bloody-minded at times. Yeah, and, and a stubborn man in some ways. Oh, God, yes. Mm. If he was trying to get to the bottom of something, Mm. um, he had no truck for fools. Mm. Um, And anyway, he probably had a cricket game to go and play. Well, that's right, (laughs) because cricket was one of his great passions. And as recently as late last summer, early autumn last year, he had a spat with um, Jonathan Agnew, the Test Match special commentator, who he wasn't a particularly big fan of. But I, I sometimes wish, as a cricket fan myself, and I've read some of his cricket writing, I wish he'd expanded on that a bit more because he was so good at it. But there again, if he'd done that, something else would have to give. So, you know, there's only 24 hours in a day, but it just goes to show he could have excelled in so many different areas. Um, On a final note, um, his final column for the Sunday Telegraph in March of this year, I think was an absolute masterpiece where it's not a very long read. It's only a five minute read. I would say to everyone listening to this, pour yourself a coffee, look it up. Uh, I'll, I'll post a link on the website so everyone can read it. I know it's on your blog, Greg. But it explains very well the mess this country is now in and the sort of society we have become. And he, he said, you know, we, we all like to think we leave the world in a better state than we found it. But he said he, he's felt increasingly as though he's writing this country's epitaph in recent times. And 
in just a very short column, and again, as usual, he wasn't given that much space in the Sunday Telegraph, he explained in his own way, in his own very good and very clear way, the problems this country is now facing. And I think it's an absolute masterpiece. I, I, I think it is a stunning piece of incredibly courageous journalism. Mm. He is thinking about his country. He's thinking about those he's leaving behind. Mm. He's made it abundantly clear in the article with absolutely not one whit of self-pity that he is dying Mm. and he is concerned for everyone else. Um, I cannot think of a better piece, more readable, of journalism in the whole of my life. My thanks to Greg, and my thanks to you for listening. See you next week.